Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing and my hallowed honor to be in dialogue with Maxine Lowy. We will be discussing her recently published book, Latent Memory, Human Rights and Jewish Identity in Pinochet's Chile, published in Madison, Wisconsin by University of Wisconsin Press 2022. Maxine is an editor, translator, and freelance journalist with a focus on human rights and contemporary social issues of Chile. Born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, she is the daughter of university professors. Maxine spent several years of her childhood in Latin America She has lived in Chile since 1990. She has been a close collaborator with human rights attorneys in Chile and participates in the progressive Jewish organization, the Diana Aron Jewish Organization. Maxine, I'm thrilled to be with you today. Likewise, Ari. It's it's very exciting to be connected through this, this medium. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life catalyzed the journalist and social activist you would become as an adult? Well, I have to say that it goes back to, uh, I would say that my parents, really, and the environment I grew up in, my my parents were progressive Jews uh, who chose to uh, live in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. My, my, my father was a botanist. My mother was a, a, a Latin America, was born in Argentina and came to to Argent, to United States in uh, the first era of Peron. And uh, my father finished his, his doctorate first and got his teaching job first. And he chose, of all places, Baton Rouge, Louisiana in, in, in the early 50s which was not really a, um, a very fertile ground to, to live in as a progressive Jew, as a Jew, and as a, as a progressives. And uh, they, especially because both of them were uh, involved in, in, in civil rights. Uh, and, uh, and as I was growing up, oh, I was, uh, we were uh, I have a sister. Uh, we were we were all really keenly aware of being, you could say, different from those around us. We were keen aware of not being um, Christian, uh, of being progressives, uh, and and also uh, maybe other wider worldly for for my, for my mother, and because we were a family that. That uh, that that traveled to Latin America and had lived and and our home was was quite different from those of our neighbors. So, uh, for my parents, who were both Jewish, 
but I would say that they, they were non-religious Jews. I, I grew up without uh, hardly any any kind of even the most like minimal tradition, uh, uh, Jewish tradition. And uh, but for both my parents, uh, they they their view of what it meant to be Jewish was we are the most persecuted uh, people a nation in the world have in over millennial and so and we have the duty my father i clearly remember to to be with those who are persecuted today that in a nutshell is was my father's worldview of, of what it meant to be jewish and and i saw him and you could see him and my mother practice that you know as their uh, stance uh, in, in civil rights uh, in a very, very, um, very conservative um, uh, town. Uh, and my father uh, was courageous to speak out against uh, injustice and uh, and also uh, it was a, also a, a bilingual household. I was I grew up speaking and and reading. Uh, both Spanish and English. My mother knew didn't didn't speak English very well when when I was when when I was born, and my father grew up in a Hungarian neighborhood of Manhattan. Uh, he was of, of both his parents were Hungarians immigrants, and his first language was Hungarian. So uh, we were probably a, an unusual uh, family. Uh, when I was born. Uh, there were uh, it was an enclave of of Jewish families similar to ours. They were all kind of liberal uh, university professors who all taught at LSU, Louisiana State University, and their children were of similar age. And uh, but one by one, uh, they eventually all of them, except for our family, left for more easier climates you could say and so uh, ours was the only fa only of that of that group that stayed and um, and so I would say that that uh, that my initial view of what it meant to be Jewish was first that we had to be on the side of justice and and second I did it meant being feeling that we were definitely other and different than around that. Even even though, uh, even without uh, knowing uh, the most fundamental um, concepts of Judaism, which I gradually, you know, in my life and in, in my in university, I began to add different layers of of meaning and identity to what it meant to be a Jew as I grew up and 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 left Louisiana. And uh, went to school in uh, in in Grinnell College, Iowa. Uh, I, I think that was a very crucial time where I, I attended my first Passover seder's and then and my first uh, Jewish tradition came alive for me. And, and it's where it's there where the uh, activist tradition of my parents came together with the Jewish tradition for the first time in a very incipient way, but but began. And from there, just to give you a little bit more, 
uh, I, I I didn't I had intended to to uh, do a math masters in in uh, journalism, but uh, I was um, I had a detour and I never went back to academics. I I, I went to work with the United Farm Workers Union uh, of Cesar Chavez uh, in in the late seventies, and I remained with that organization seven years, uh, working in. Uh, on behalf of, of this uh, amazing organization uh, where I came across again, it really deepened my sense of both <laughs> being Jewish and and of being uh, and of the need to be uh, of the idea of 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 justice, justice, you know, you shall pursue. So uh, and along the way, uh, uh, that's that's how it began to come about. That's my own personal um, story. And I had my own uh, uh, bat mitzvah when I was um, I was in my twenties, and, and at that time I had I'd come like full circle, had left the United Farm Workers Union and come gone to live in in New Orleans. And was working with a immigrant advocacy program, and there for the first time I could be um, set in one place because with the United Farm Workers Union we 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 traveled a great deal, and so I that's where I had my my bar mitzvah my bat mitzvah, and continued to expand this idea of a Jewish identity and and justice. What inspired you to write this book? What message did you hope to convey to readers? Well, the book, I, I think that the the title of the book, which is Latent Memory, uh, encapsulates in, in, to a degree what, what I intend. And and it is the idea first that uh, that there uh, that that memories of, of trauma, of groups and people, individuals who have been subjected to, to trauma, either as a collective uh, or even individual, that there are different ways that people approach that or, or the groups are, are able to, to interiorize them or are confronted. Uh, some, of course, um, try to keep that back in their past. Some live with it eternally and, and can't go beyond it. And then there are other ways that others that integrate the memory of what they went through and uh, they keep, they use it as a channel, you know, that uh, that activates the memory. It's not, instead of being latent as, as it is, it's it's associated. It becomes a, a, uh, a vehicle uh, using that memory uh, of of what happened to you and what happened to others in in your group uh, becomes a a vehicle and and it forms your your world your outlook and 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 that means that that you have an active uh, commitment uh, with with justice and uh, uh, social justice and 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 where we are today I would say that. Uh, this is that what I found in Chile um, 
it, it, it was the, it basically stood out for me because I am an outsider. You know, I've lived here 30 years, but actually I will always be an outsider. And, and so I'm sure it happens as travelers, you know, when, whenever we travel to a new place uh, as tourists or, or for a short term, things stand out for us, right? And so in my case, um, I, I seemed, I, in my naivete at first, or in my lack of understanding of what had happened in Chile, uh, I, uh, it seemed, it seemed, it's really struck me that when I began to understand that the Jewish community of Chile had actively supported the military coup, and as well as the dictatorship throughout its its seventeen years, and so I I, I tried to understand uh, what what that was about, and it's something as I say uh, in Chile, it's uh, that I feel regrettable that uh, the Chilean Chilean Jewish community. Uh, continues to have a there is a perception uh, in the society as a whole that it is a, um, a very conservative um, entity, and I think that they're not mistaken in that. So uh, I feel that I felt that it was very important to visible to to come to terms to to work through why that was, and at the same time. Uh, visualize uh, and and uh, profile uh, the principles and concepts that should uh, that I believe are, are central to Judaism uh, as an, as a base of a of a social commitment arising from Judaism, and also visualize uh, those uh, progressive Jews who were either victims. Uh, and who were forgotten, or 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 whose whose uh, memory had been taboo almost in Chile, and uh, and and offer this in part as a process of healing and as reparation, uh, both for them uh, as well as giving the the uh, as as providing perhaps a way for the Jewish community as a whole. To come to terms, it's a long explanation, but that that that's that's really partly what what it is. And I, I would I would add, since we're on the the, the title, uh, I it was the subtitle in English. The book was originally published in Spanish and and said Memoria Latina, Memoria Latente in, in Spanish in, in 2016, 17. And, and the English says a subtitle says human rights and Jewish identity in Pinochet's Chile. I had uh, a difficult uh, it was a challenge to think of what would be an appropriate subtitle. That the Spanish simply says the translation is a community uh, confronted by the challenge of human rights in Chile. It doesn't put it in a temporal uh, dimension. Uh, I understand that for for United States, it's it's important to set it, and you need to put that. But I just need to need to point out that Pinochet's Chile uh, is not something that uh, was limited to seventeen years of dictatorship. It's it's something that's still alive and very much uh, affects this country today. 
30 years, 30 so 32 years after uh, the dictatorship formally ended. So uh, I think that this is an event, uh, this is a, a notion and a concern that's still alive. Uh, the concept of, of how as Jews we we confront our memory and how memory of Holocaust and and way beyond that uh, of of millennial of uh, persecution how we we uh, channel that memory and how what is our relationship how we associate instead of disassociating ourselves and our memory what's going on around us. So. What are the primary themes in your book? What story and stories does your book tell? The the book uh, takes the, the reader through the, the initial part, uh, uh, points out the, the stories that we all have in common, all Jews who are immigrants. Uh, I think that, that's why the first two chapters are about uh, immigration. It 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 seeks to look at the to point out the uh, all of the the base um, stories and origins that, that we have in common, and and how later that that separated, uh, and uh, the the other part has to do exactly with this ethical, what I call the ethical crossroads that the uh, uh, that Chilean community uh, confronted uh, first through the election of Allende and and then uh, with the uh, military coup in 1973 and, and on, on through the present. And it, and it poses the ideas, you know, we, we always in, in, uh, in Shoah and Holocaust story, star, uh, studies, uh, we give a lot of attention to what we call bystanders, uh, standers, and, and and rescuers as well. Those who who did not uh, remain, who people who chose uh, for various reasons to remain uh, passive. So I, I try to take uh, concepts such as those that are most associated with Holocaust or Shoah. And see how they, um, what they tell us about Chile, and as well as the Jewish community. But I, 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 I should just say that I, I feel like that the, the dilemmas that the, that the Jewish community's reaction posed, I think it's not not only limited to this particular group as a Jew, as Jewish community. I think it's something that happens when a community is small, perhaps, as a way to understand it. Those are some of the, the things that, that uh, and issues that that, that uh, it, it looks at again. So it, it looks at what we have in common. It looks at uh, what separates us. It looks at issues of uh, Jewish identity. It looks at ethical issues. It looks at also of how Holocaust and Shoah paved a road uh, for societies that were merging from from um, regimes of uh, authoritarian dictatorial regimes in which human rights uh, uh, were not respected and human dignity uh, uh, 
uh, was trampled on. So I try to point out and look at these parallel roads and how, because as it is uh, Holocaust studies and, and Holocaust has been a reference uh, in Chile and for people, advocates in different areas of, of work who, who in these 30 years and before that, we're looking at how to, we're grappling with how to deal with what was happening here and what to de how to deal with what came afterwards. Can you describe the history of Jewish immigration to Chile? Sure. Uh, I, in fact, I, I gave a presentation about that some, some years ago. Um, and in fact, uh, there were, Jews have been in Chile since the time of the initial, uh, of the first Spanish Conquistadores. <laughs> it, it said that uh, that that the 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 conquistador called Pedro Valdivia was was the one who first came into with the territory, which is now Chile. And it said that that even his translator uh, and other people who came with him were were Jews. Uh, I don't know if the, the Jewish translators would have known the Mapuche language, <laughs> you know, but but apparently. Uh, 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 wherever uh, it's apparently the same thing happened with with Columbus, you know that that apparently uh, uh, the translator that Columbus took along uh, was Jewish. So they were from from the from the begin very beginning, even through the colonial times, there were the presence of, of Jews. Uh, this was, uh, but this was a it's a, a place though that uh, in, in fact there are one of the first where well known. Um, uh, cases of persecution of during the in Inquisition was of a of a, a Portuguese of a man of Portuguese origin uh, who was living in, in Chile uh, under an assumed identity. Uh, his name was Francisco Maldonado da Silva, uh, who was who was uh, had uh, been living in was a, one of the first was a prominent doctor, one of the first doctors and founder of the first hospitals in Chile in in the uh, late 1500s to 16, and he was uh, was uh, secretly practicing as a Jew, married to to uh, to a non-Jew, obviously, and and he was eventually. Detected, uh, denounced, and, and sent to the uh, Inquisition, uh, where he languished in the in a in a prison in uh, in Lima for about twelve years. But uh, this, I, I I know this seems like uh, maybe it seems far removed, but I think that the the, diff the what we have in common is that the the Jewish community uh, in Chile has always been. Um, small and felt itself um, uh, felt the need to be protective. Uh, so and, and that feel it never felt that it was uh, totally welcome. So when when uh, the Chilean state came into uh, was established in 18, 1810, uh, shortly afterwards came one of the first, uh, immigration laws. Uh, they called it, in fact, the selective immigration law. It was selective. Why? Because uh, 
Chile was anxious, the Chilean government, post-Spanish, Spaniards, was anxious to have immigrants from Europe, but uh, actually only uh, they, uh, unlike uh, Argentina, which had a very similar immigration history as the United States, and that encouraged uh, immigration from all countries and 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 and, uh, and had a massive uh, numbers of immigrants from Italy and Jewish, uh, thanks to uh, Baron Hirsch that that brought my my grandparents my and my great grandparents to Argentina, but Argent but Chile had never had that kind of a outlook. They had a very clue, very, very closed view, and so their selective law meant that they wanted their immigration was limited initially to Catholics, and and then well then then they discovered they realized that they, they wanted Germans that Germans were not Catholic they were Protestant or Lutherans so they had to make a an exception for for these for these uh, immigrants that they wanted that were desired. So uh, they wanted those immigrants basically to populate uh, in southern uh, Chile uh, in a in a time and a place where they were all actually already populated by by indigenous people, and and they, they were the Germans' presence were 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 a vehicle to to take. Uh, land and away from the native, but to to jump, uh, I know this is kind of prolo prolonging this uh, this part of the interview, but in in the air in the time, uh, this I think this outlook we could see this again in the in the nineteen thirties, um, just like uh, Chile was no was not no exception. It was it with with it, it's. A participation in the Evian conference that where all the nations of the world decided to limit uh, immigration uh, to their countries and and, and to pro and to ban Jewish refugees from coming. Jew uh, uh, Chile simply followed suit, and so it, it, it discouraged uh, initially Jews from 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 coming to to Chile, and. Uh, uh, eventually, uh, and also Chile, I have to say, was one of the the last countries to um, to keep uh, consulates open in in Berlin and in the in the in in the countries occupied by the Nazis. And these uh, consulates were were uh, run by people who were really very sympathetic. To the Nazi occupiers uh, in in Prague, in Berlin, there there different their stories that of of the concerts who 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 did their best to discourage and 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 I actually uh, tried to influence the Chilean immigration uh, department uh, in 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 uh, banning uh, the entrance of the Jews. Uh, so with these difficulties, people eventually came, uh, did come to, to, to Chile and, and, and settled here. Um, uh, both earlier, I think that the first group 
uh, was uh, really in the early 1900s were, were Sephardics, that the first, the most, I think the oldest uh, synagogues and, and institutions were, were uh, Sephardic. In, and uh, there's also, I think, the, one of the, uh, probably the oldest institution in, in Chile, Jewish institution, was, uh, is called Birkat uh, Hoylim, uh, uh, which was actually uh, like an immigrant, Jewish immigrant uh, orientation kind of society. And that became the first and the oldest uh, synagogue in, in Chile. Can you tell us about Chile's response to the rise of Nazism? Chile, um, I think I think one thing that that uh, that will tell you a lot is that in 1937, uh, Chile, the first three uh, Jews were elected to 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 Chile's Congress. Uh, and they were the three. Those three people were were all members of, of progressive parties, uh, political parties. In that same election, uh, there were uh, Nazis who were elected to Congress as well. Uh, imagine that. Imagine that that Congress of, of 1937. Uh, so we had the first three Jews uh, who were elected, uh, and at the same time, the, the first. There were there were Nazis who were uh, in, in in Congress as well. Uh, there was um, considerable um, at, at that influence at, at that point. Um, there there were Nazis uh, who were uh, who who had come and were influencing in southern Chile. As I mentioned, the first uh, mass migration that was promoted by by Chile was of Germans. And Austrians. So in southern Chile, in southern Chile, uh, there are large communities composed of of, of Germans in in the towns of, of Valdivia, for for example, and Osorno, and uh, uh, both uh, older and new uh, immigrants as well. So uh, these were enclaves uh, that were. Um, uh, um, that influenced, try to influence Chile's uh, participation, which initially was uh, was aligned with with uh, the Axis. It was not. Uh, it it was. Uh, it 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 later it, it it claimed to be neutral, but as as I say, uh, their consulars, the, the consulates in in Chile in in uh, in Europe were overtly. Um, pro-Nazi and anti-Jewish uh, uh, immigration, and and I think that we can we see that reflected. There's a, a notable book written by a a, a Chilean journalist called Raúl Sor, who, who I mentioned. I mentioned him in 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 my book, not his book, because his book came later. His novel, it's called. Uh, La Guerra de Mahler, Mahler's War, and it, it's about uh, it's a it's based on a true story of of a, a nephew of the of the of the musician Gustav Mahler who 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 was able to escape Austria and and came to live in Valdivia and uh, and was shocked to to see uh, Nazis 
information, uh, out, outward um, expressions of of uh, of of um, of solidarity, you could say, or, or of approval of what was happening in in in, in Europe, and, and that book, uh, if it's it gets to be trans, uh, translated in English, I think would be really remarkable uh, for for many people. And the things that that this historical fiction book uh, recounts. Can you describe the experiences of Jewish refugees from Nazi Germany and Nazi occupied Europe? In Chile, I would, um, I, I would, I would like to, to, uh, you mean when when they first came? I, I don't know. I would like. To, there's one one story in uh, one family, one couple that does that that I focus on in in the book uh, that are like a I consider them like a focal point. For, for much of the book. And I, I'm speaking of Gunter Selman and Honey um, Grunfetter. Uh, both of them were born in, in Europe. Uh, Gunter uh, was uh, about seven or eight years old uh, and and, uh, and and living in, in uh, Aachen, Germany, at the time of Kristallnacht. And he had a, a vivid memory of of that night, of, of his home uh, being ransacked and of the, the, the windows of his father's shop uh, broken uh, and how, uh, and immediately after that, his, his, his father was, uh, was one of, the, of many people rounded up in his town and taken to Buchenwald. And somehow or another, he, uh, his, his father, Frederick, uh, Selman managed to to get out, and within um, four months later, they were en route to to Chile, and they they came they arrived in Chile in in January nineteen thirty nine, and uh, I, I mentioned Gunter Selman because he, for me, he and his wife at the same at the same time. Uh, his wife was born in in, in Czechoslovakia. Of a, a Jewish family, and and she, uh, with the outbreak uh, of of the invasion, she uh, as a as a young child went to London, and, and her father, um, uh, who was a German, was immediately um, detained in in uh, the Isle of Man, you know, which was had been set up as a as a detention camp for for all German speaking people, regardless of without distinguishing between Jews and, and, and non-Jews. But I, I mentioned these because their, their experience was formative for them. You know, some people, uh, and for, for these, for this couple that eventually they, they were both, they met and grew up, they grew up and met in, in the town of Concepcion in Southern Chile. Both of them um, uh, were members of, of the Hashomer Hatzair, uh, Zionist organization. This is the socialist scout group, which um, was was fairly prominent, I think, in, in in Chile in those years. And both of them were members of that. Uh, they w became also uh, from their uh, socialist party members. Uh, Gunther, as they grew up, he was a uh, uh, 
a pediatric uh, uh, psychologist, psych, uh, uh, psychiatrist, and his his wife, uh, Hani, uh, uh, was was a uh, was a public health nurse, and uh, he and was involved in shaping. Uh, public policy, both of them, and both of them really very, very active in um, in all that was public health and in social medicine uh, in developing that in, in, in Chile. And uh, uh, on the, Gunther was also at the time of the coup in 73, he was president of the Concepcion um, Jewish community. There was no rabbi there. There's a there's a long there's an old um, synagogue, but it didn't have a rabbi, and he was president of that community, and he was uh, arrested on the very day of the coup of uh, September 11th, 73, and taken with others to an island that's off the coast of Concepcion, which is, Concepcion is a coastal town uh, um, about six hours south of Santiago. And on this island, which was had been a naval base, cadet training place, uh, he immediately uh, became, became a, uh, a person who, Again, in these circumstances, he he treated people who were coming there directly from torture, and uh, and 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 formed a team of of, of doctors, so all of them who were imprisoned, like he like he was a fellow prisoner. He he had some uh, leeway or or some kind of. Uh, um, way of involvement because he knew the commander from before he was in in prison. What I want to point out is that that he was uh, eventually was uh, uh, given uh, one of the first Chileans to receive political asylum in Germany, and Ger and this was thanks to uh, a Lutheran bishop who 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 was. Uh, lobbying the, the the German embassy and in, in state to receive this man back, uh, and saying that this is this is this person who escaped the Nazism and came to Chile, and if you don't act today, uh, it's possible that that he will he will be subject to uh, he he could be he face his life might, might end in, in prison. And uh, this was one of one of the very crucial points because um, uh, that, that persuaded the, the German government to open the way for Chilean refugees. And it just, it, it's, it's so uh, uh, incredible to think that, that Gunther then returned to Germany, to the country where he had been expelled from, where he had been forced to flee. And eventually his wife and family joined him and they raised their children. And then and, and so they came, you could say they came full circle in, in, 
in Germany. And uh, when they uh, they eventually came back, he was had from the day he from the last days of his life, he 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 died uh, this past September at at the age of ninety one, I think. And he was always, always working on both fronts. He was always actively uh, testimony, uh, testifying uh, to, and giving his testimony in groups about what it meant to be, uh, what it meant to live, to be under a, a totalitarian regime, what it meant to be, uh, what human rights means, what it means to be a Holocaust survivor, and uh, he, uh, at the same time, uh, he would talk about the Chilean uh, dictatorship uh, as well. So uh, that's that's something I think that that's one example of how uh, living through both continents, you know, and both two generations, um, and and both sets of situations, uh, you're able to find. Uh, something that, that that unites. What aspects of the history of the Augusto Pinochet dictatorship first piqued your interest? Well, I have to say that uh, first we have to think of, uh, of that the that it came as a absolute surprise and shock to Chileans, you know, and and it talks of how uh, it talks of how. Uh, it felt they they believed that their democracy was stable and solid, but at the same time, their memory uh, was weak because it 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 was not the first time in in Chilean history that that uh, that a uh, that authoritarian regime was was in power or that that systematic repression was was in place. Uh, even in 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 the nineteen forties fifties, there was a uh, a president who who was elected as a progressive and turned out to be a an absolute um, uh, repressive uh, figure. Uh, and so, uh, one thing was it was a shock, but uh, it was in Chile. I think that the shock was double because there had been a great uh, expectation uh, of of change in, in this country. And so the change began not only with, with uh, Sabor Allende, but really before that, I have to say, some of the most prominent and most fundamental um, uh, changes that, 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 uh, that Allende uh, introduced actually had been uh, had been explored and were actually uh, begun by the Christian Democrat uh, Eduardo Frey, who was the president before the nationalization of the of the copper, uh, agrarian reform, housing, uh, all the basic uh, um, areas of of human life uh, life had been addressed initially by by Eduardo Frey, a Christian Democrat, and so. Um, uh, but what was um, uh, very uh, what what set Allende apart was that it was uh, much more uh, 
systematic, was more, um, you could say, in, in this case, uh, there was a notion also that um, that because he was the first president, uh, first socialist elected as a president in, in the world, that he was going to be a, uh, present a a danger to the especially the United States worldview, and and so uh, from the first day that that before he even took office, uh, there was. Uh, covert activity and uh, operations that were uh, unfurled by the United States uh, just before, uh, right after the uh, election, the the commander in chief of the army, uh, Rene Schneider, was was kidnapped and and assassinated, uh, and this is completely documented that it was with collaboration of the United States and uh, and um, and so. There was from the beginning. There's this both two uh, two uh, forces. The forces of uh, that were uh, of Allende that were seeking to bring um, to install uh, to to introduce a more just society uh, that was in a very integral sense, in a very that that looked at. The, the human being and, and all of its different facets of the, of our of our needs to live in in, in full dignity and uh, and so the dictatorship came as a terribly you know rude awakening awakening of how weak of how fragile uh, a democracy can be but in this case it was it was aided by by forces from outside of the, of, of the country who had other, other, other interests as well. So um, the, the Pinochet, uh, the 17 years of the Pinochet dictatorship were a time that, uh, that absolutely uh, turned around what we think of as a basis of any democratic society. Remember, we may think of more, more prominently, we think of the uh, of human rights, the uh, physical human rights uh, abuses. But remember that that from the first day that that the the military coup took place, it very symbolically and 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 uh, concretely bombed La Moneda Presidential Palace, which is like the the, the seat of the executive body. Executive uh, branch, and uh, and and it, and it created a all-powerful uh, executive branch, you could say, that was centered on the military junta. It closed down the, the 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 Congress. There was no Congress during seventeen years. There was a commission of civilians and military that made uh, that created de facto laws to. Uh, uh, Tailor made for to suit uh, the 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 regime, uh, uh, something that people from outside of, of Chile are are often amazed about. In some of the courses I've I've, I've taught to uh, foreign exchange students here, is that uh, all of the the there's a sense of of legality that's really very deep in in uh, maybe in the Spanish tradition. And so there were laws 
de facto laws uh, that were made by hundreds, and uh, they called decreto laws, decreed laws, decretionary laws, uh, that were made to justify everything uh, as if uh, something that was absolutely, uh, we would say, uh, absolutely, uh, 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 it would say, where is there a semblance of legality of, of creating a secret um, uh, agency that spies and that uh, detains without uh, a warrant and that uh, the secret prisons, all that system was had a legality. All of the system of uh, decentralizing uh, and deregulating uh, Chile's had a, a extraordinary, exceptionally high educational and health standards and, and system. All of that was part of what the, the dictatorship uh, uh, turned around. Um, you know, uh, Naomi Klein uh, had, has written really brilliantly in her in her book, The Shock Doctrine, about what happened in Chile in the 1980s. Uh, by that time, the Chilean regime considered itself um, installed and unquestioned. And uh, and so in the 19, early 1980, uh, consulting with uh, a United States economists in, in Chicago, it, um, it, it opened to what, uh, to it in, installed probably what's the most uh, deepest legacy of the dictatorship still today, which was a decentral uh, a, a uh, extreme decentralization, deregulation of all basic services, privatization uh, the privatization of of what had been public um, from schools, from hospitals, uh, medical system, uh, from uh, even uh, uh, the most basic system, uh, uh, water, the rights to water and uh, electricity, uh, the most basic uh, kind of um, elements uh, of a democratic society were privatized, deregulated, and decentralized. And and this is something that we still contend with in, in Chile today, you know, 32 years later. So I think it's really important that, you know, that this this kind of what Naomi Klein calls a shock do doctrine is that she says that this kind of extreme um, um, implementation from one night to the one day to night one day from one day to the next of this the system that that um, just submerged uh, Chileans in extreme pro poverty uh, was only possible in a country that had been um, that had been uh, been already uncontrolled un by by extreme physical. Um, human rights violations. That those were the that's is what made this shock uh, doctrine pro possible. Were the human rights violations that that had been installed, and in the censorship, uh, control of media. Uh, this is what's extraordinary. But 
beyond this, what interests me to come to Chile and what interests me about Chile, especially, it's, it makes it stand out, is that beside this brutal um, regime that uh, looked in a really very, you could say, had this very ideological way of looking at Chile, at, at the country, including the uh, creation of a of a constitution in 1980 uh, uh, that was completely um, uh, had had no kind of legitimate base, but uh, but at the same time, with uh, what was happening, it was exceptional in Chile. Uh, that that's unlike uh, Argentina, for example, was that from the very beginning there were organizations that did stand up to the regime, that did uh, that did uh, do their best, and and many uh, made a very courageous effort uh, to protect human lives and to protect the families of people who were, were being persecuted. It, this began with uh, an, an, an interfaith committee called the Comité Propaz, which was convened uh, by the uh, Archbishop of, of Santiago, uh, Cardinal Enriquez, uh, and uh, uh, Carlo, uh, he, he within just uh, the first uh, month after the, the coup, uh, he convened this group uh, of ecumenical in, interfaith that included uh, Lutherans, Methodists, and a Catholic, and 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 one and one uh, and one rabbi. And I have to say that that uh, that this cardinal had not been uh, overtly uh, progressive. Um, Catholic figure. He was Chile was a place where liberation theology was uh, was was had a very was a very strong current in the sixties and seventies. But he was not part of that current, and yet the force of what was happening, the the shock of what he was seeing in just the first few weeks, uh, prompted him to create this very courageous group of, uh, bring this courageous group of people together uh, to, to do what could be done to, uh, to document what was happening, uh, to uh, try to get the uh, people out of Chile, and, and, and then also to provide uh, all kinds of um, social assistance, and there were social workers, there were lawyers, there were doctors, there were there were there were volunteers. Uh, that uh, some there were Jewish as well. And so, what's extraordinary about Chile for me, and and what I like to point out is that in the middle of such brutality, there's this resilience spirit. And the Comité Protest was just the first of many organizations that that sprung up. In the very time that the that the regime was in, in power, uh, this did not happen in in, in Argentina, uh, and, and probably uh, because and and that and that country, the the Catholic Church uh, supported the military regime. It was an active supporter and active presence uh, of of the military regime. And so it was really, really very, very fortunate that there was a figure 
of, of this stature in uh, in the Catholic Church that, that brought people together. And uh, even before, in the days and the months before, um, uh, they had come together as an ecumenical group, interfaith group, trying to bring sides together, trying to prompt dialogue because the coup was seen as inevitable. It was seen really clearly by all sides that, that something was coming. So there was a, an, there had been an intensification of, of attacks by, by right-wing thugs. Uh, uh, some of them, uh, which we later learned also had been funded by the United States. And there's even a, a US citizen that, that, that was involved uh, from the start who later played a, a very prominent role in, in repressive acts internationally. So uh, I think those are two, two things. It's important to, to remember that, that, uh, that the, the uh, Pinochet regime affected every dimension of, the, of Chilean society. Not only is a physical um, of repression uh, and in disregard for human uh, dignity, the the system the systematic um, um, the systematic uh, um, uh, uh, practices for repression and even even the, you know that the, even the, the expression disappeared person was coined in Chile it, it was coined by by people from the organization that succeeded the Comité Propas which was forced to close by by the regime. And the next organization was called the Vicariate of Solidarity, which was basically the same, but with more protections. And it was there that uh, that people began to, who worked in compiling the data that was coming, the denunciations that were being reported, uh, that they came up, began to uh, discern that something was happening and uh, that the detention of people that was the unacknowledged detention of people in places uh, that were unknown, um, uh, that was utterly like confusing to relatives and to people at, at the time. Uh, people could be uh, like, as in the case of the, the, the woman who we named our organization for, Diana Ron, she was... Uh, abducted um, on the street, walking uh, uh, in, in one part of, of Santiago, and, uh, and she realized that uh, that uh, the, the people who were who were, had parked their car were were who were after her were were people from the repressive Vina agent, and. Uh, well, she was taken from the street. She was shot there. Uh, she survived, but uh, later was killed in, in detention. But the word, the notion of the disappeared person was coined in Chile. And uh, it, it, it was a systematic response coordinated between the ministry, the judges, the, the relatives would, you know, if if uh, today, if someone goes missing, if, if uh, relatives, we would go first to a police station, probably. And uh, they would say, no, we don't have that person. That person, we know, no, know nothing about them. They're not in detention. They, then the relative would go somewhere else. So they'll go to 
the interior ministry, or they go to the judges, they go to other other public entities. And all of these would say, no, uh, we know nothing about this person. Uh, some would say, well, when we hear that there's a place that's called Via Grimaldi, uh, there's a, uh, there we hear that people are being taken to a place on Unioa Colon uh, in downtown, uh, in downtown uh, Santiago on, on Laundress Street. Uh, and they said, that's, that's just, just a figment of your imagination. So this is what began to, um, uh, to you could say, configure uh, the, the concept that disappeared per persons was not an accident. Uh, it was a specific uh, figure and practice. Can you tell us about Chilean Jewish Marxists? Who were the most notable? Uh, they, they were a great in, in the ninth in the early at the time of the of the uh during the United popular unity um government of of allende there were uh for the first time uh th there were something like 20 people jews who were members of, of the of the uh, it had different government jobs. It was it was in, and government ministers. Um, it was never before had there been any uh, such a number of 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 Jews in a, in a, a government of Chile, and, and not since then either. One person, for example, was uh, Miguel Launer, an architect who who worked in in creating public housing. Uh, an, another figure that was very well known in Chile, who was a member uh, of, the, of the Communist Party, is called Alejandro Lipschutz, who's a scientist. I have to say, I, I almost hesitate to, to use these words, these terms, because they're so loaded in the United States to hear Socialist Party and Communist Party. But in Chile, they have a different kind of connotation. Um, uh, the Socialist Party uh, is not a today is not a a Marxist party. You could you could say it's more closest to uh, Social Democrat. Uh, it's probably close to um, some some wings of the of the Democratic Party, United States. Um, so I I kind of I hesitate because I feel like like people will will not understand. Uh, there's such a when I when I mentioned socialist or communist, uh, and the the Communist Party of, of Chile was independent uh, of the Soviet Union. Uh, it was, uh, I think, one of the few that was like native born. You could say it was uh, created by a a union organizer. I think he was also a member of the Methodist Church uh, in in northern Chile. Uh, among others, in, in at the time uh, of the United Popular Unity government, uh, uh, the, for example, there was uh, Carlos Berger, whose both his parents were were Hungarian Jews, one and who was um, had been an engineer and, and chief of communications uh, at the Chukicamata mine, the largest open pit mine, a uh, copper mine in, in the world, uh, who was uh, arrested and, 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 uh, and, eventually, and eventually 
shot by uh, uh, extrajudicially. Uh, there are numerous people I, I can I can uh, uh, tell you about uh, uh, if if you want to hear more about see about this the people who were in the cabinet. There were as I say there were um, from uh, people who were like Enrique Kierberg, who was who was the chancellor of the of the university, there were many, many people who were uh, a part of, of leftist parties and uh, had been in the in the uh, the the, uh, the popular unity government. Ernesto um, Chalman was another one. He was uh, he had come as a Jewish as a Jewish uh, refugee from Czechoslovakia and. Uh, and as soon as he he came back, he he, he came to Chile. He eventually joined uh, again this Hashomer Hatzair, as it seemed to be a great influence on 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 left on leftist uh, Jews in, in Chile. It seemed to be like a a place that kind of spawned uh, people's worldview. Uh, they entered the Hashem Hatzair, and and from there, many people uh, opened up to other uh, more political uh, uh, parties as as well. So uh, let's say uh, th there were quite a many people, uh, at least twenty or more, uh, who were in different ca cabinet members, uh, not members, but. Uh, in, in different cabinet positions in, in all different different areas of uh there was also uh David Badelman he was director of the agrarian reform corporation uh Jaime uh Fibovich was governor of Santiago at the time uh, also uh, the the state um um the state newspaper, the La Nación, was was uh, the director, the editor in chief was Oscar Weiss. There are just many, uh, any number of, of people who were very active. But at the same time, let, let me just say that uh, the Jewish community as a whole, uh, the institutional part, the, the synagogues, the uh, uh, had this, um, this, uh, this, despite the presence of many Jews in in government, and despite uh, different symbolic gestures by Salvador Allende uh, to reassure the the community that uh, he embraced uh, the Jewish community, uh, people as. Uh, I think in a rather simplistic political analysis, you could say, uh, uh, equated uh, Allende's uh, Socialist Party with uh, Stalinist or, or a more communist uh, hardline type of uh, politics. And they were actually, they were, uh, they were, I think they were sadly mistaken in that. They were really dramatically mistaken in, in, in that assessment, 
but it spurred people to to leave in mass. So uh, about a, it's said that about a third of the of the Jewish community uh, left Chile uh, with the election of, of Allende in, in 1970, and uh, they were um, at, at the same time as at least say. We could see on both sides because uh, there was great involvement of, of people and of young Jewish uh, university students in uh, in in the uh, in the campaign of Samar Allende and in in, in different uh, parts of, of his government. But about a third of, of the Jewish community left the country with with his election, and. Uh, and and many came back uh, when when uh, the dictatorship uh, came into power in in September '73. How did Salvador Allende perceive Chile's Jews? How did Chile's Jews perceive Salvador Allende? Uh, well, well, that's what I was what I was uh, pointing at before. Uh, that uh, I think I think it probably uh, there was a. Uh, uh, there was a uh, maybe a, a lack of of understanding of what it meant at, uh, for uh, on the part of of Jews or what it meant to be uh, socialist in in Allende's democratic terms. But Allende, from the start, even when when he was in, in campaign and and, and and shortly afterwards, he met with the Jewish community leaders. Uh, and uh, I have I have photographs in 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 a book that document that, uh, and to reassure them that 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 uh, there were that he this was not a going to be um, uh, he would they would not be seeing any uh, any uh, kind of anti-Semitism uh, at, at all, and I think that um, that. There may be. I'm thinking of of how Jews are perceived today in Chile, and I think that that, that may not be much different from in those years. In, in the, that, in, in the sense that uh, we are like a an unknown entity, you know. Uh, there, it's a very very small community at, at, at this time. There. Are, Maybe about fifteen thousand, twenty thousand Jews, uh, according I think to the last census, and at that time it might have been maybe maybe a bit more than that. It, I I know it sounds imprecise, but the, really the figures have been very imprecise uh, on on the on the number set that were there that that left, and um, uh, there, there's a a sense that that the, that Jews are are, are not known. Uh, it, it's not, uh, there are still very ingrained uh, Christian um, perceptions. Uh, there's a sense that there are expressions that, that come up uh, like 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 low-key, uh, like low-intensive, uh, um, you know, uh, anti-Jewish, anti-Semitism uh, kinds of, you know, jokes. <laughs> That uh, there are expressions, there are there are songs that children are taught to sing uh, from the times they're they're small, uh, 
about about uh, the bread that's burned in, in the oven and who 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 burns it? The Jew, the Jewish dog is the one who burned it. I I myself heard children in my neighborhood sing that. Uh, so I, I think that there's kind of a there's a lack of understanding and knowledge of coming into contact, and and so that that uh, spurns uh, spawns. Uh, a, a lack of understanding and, and mistrust for both sides. But Allende um, uh, had, um, I say, had a, a, a strong backing within his party. There were, there were uh, uh, a strong presence of, of Jews in the Socialist Party. Uh, and what what happened later, you know, with the uh, with the uh, elections of Allende and the the migration of people away, I think uh, I think it uh, I I perceive it as having like radicalizing the the Jewish community, both in terms of uh, of uh, the even more so in terms of the dictatorship. I mean, ra radicalizing toward the right is what I mean to say, because from from the start, even within within the first few months, right after the 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 the, the coup, there were uh, distinct expressions from Jewish um, organizations of of support for the the military regime, and that knowing. With, uh, what uh, all of the factors that that, that I mentioned, you know, that, that, that the Congress had been had banned the, the 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 end of civil and political rights, and and the physical uh, terror that was in place, so uh, it was uh, I think an uneasy um, coexistence uh, that uh, uh, that was. Uh, that has has been the 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 presence of Jews in, in Chile. What were the similarities and differences between the atrocities that occurred in Chilean torture centers and those that took place in Nazi concentration camps? Well, I, I think we could say that 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 first of all, it, it's just in, in the larger sense. Uh, I, I there's something I'd like to referred to here uh, in, in my book. You know, there's a, uh, in Jewish, there's a tendency in, uh, among Jewish, uh, uh, in the Jewish community, Jewish, among some Jewish scholars that, uh, that believe that, uh, that there cannot be any kind of equation. You cannot equate uh, that show a Holocaust with anything that came after us, and there, there's a sense that uh, th that there is a uniqueness, and that the this and the the, um, the the proportion of the uh, horror uh, and institutionalized horror of the Nazis uh, diminishes everything that came afterwards. I, I think that's really important to uh, what what you brought what you're bringing up. I think has to do with that, you know, because 
uh, it is that uh, that has, in a sense, has has created like a you'd say like a fence around the the Holocaust, and um, there's there's some uh, that that uh, that tend to deny the because it was such a uh, extreme horror uh, that they they tend to uh, minimize everything that happened afterwards and and there's a sense that um uh, that will be minimizing and uh, relativizing and negationist if if we dare say that uh, what happened in 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 Chile uh could could be a, a, at all co comparable to to the, what happened in 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 in, uh, in in the camps uh, concentration camps of, of uh, installed by the Nazis, but I think that there are points that that are great in in, in common. What is comparable, for example, in, in both, are the shared characteristics that have to do with discrimination, with segregation, with torture, with crimes against humanity. A torture in in Chile and a torture in 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 uh, uh, in in uh, uh, of the Nazis, you know, uh, has uh, the the effects you could say is the same, and uh, in now what happened, what makes it perhaps a different in 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 Chile is that not all the camps, uh, the detention centers, were. Were conceived as places of for, let's say, final solutions. You know, they were conceived as places. Uh, they were arbitrary. Uh, at, at first, uh, there were uh, people were targeted by political uh, um, participation uh, by party, uh, and but they were uh, later. Uh, they were. And um, could say that uh, they were uh, arbitrary in the sense that uh, that any person could 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 be targeted. But see, we there are people who who say uh, that it's not fair to uh, there's no comparison because as as I read from here, um, they say. Uh, one one scholar, Jewish scholar here, says that 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 uh, if we look at in terms of 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 uh, the genocidal technology employed, you know, the industrial scale death machinery uh, that we see that the Nazis implanted, um, and uh, you could say that there there's no there's not a comparison in that, and and yet there are other writers like. Bruno Bettelheim, like Elie Wiesel, like Primo Levi, that contend that the extermination of the Jews uh, of, of Europe were unique. But at the same time, other nations and peoples have also been victims of genocide. And so if we take as a given that the Shoah was a planned, large-scale, and extreme act of repression that gradually but systematically affected all aspects of life, including life itself, then we should not 
conclude that what happened in Rwanda, Cambodia, or Chile is any less serious or less monstrous. And so, and each, uh, and each and every historical fact is singular. But what underlies them is this, uh, are the characteristics of discrimination, segregation, crimes against humanity. And so if we fail to carry, as Jews, we fair, fail to carry the human rights banner everywhere, we are negating our, our history. That's what I believe and then other uh, scholars you know, believe. That's the lesson to us as, as Jews as well. And what's, what's interesting is that uh, still it's when by, uh, it, when it, it's been pointed out that some point out that that comparison diminishes and relativizes the Shoah as in a unique historical episode. But what when we compare, but comparing highlights not only similarities but also the differences. And so comparing the systematic violations of human rights com committed in Chile with those carried out by regimes in other countries enables us to work through their meaning and put those experiences in, in perspective. And so, uh, and, and in fact, uh, Shoah as, a, as still as the, the uh, a tremendous greatest crime, a systematic crime of the 20th century is not analogous. It has become a, a reference point. And in Chile, we hear Holocaust. Uh, uh, as it has become synonymous with modern day barbarism. And, and in fact, it has become, became a, a, a point of references in other ways for advocates. Um, when uh, a, a, uh, the neuropsychiatrist, uh, Paz Rojas, was one of the founders of one of the human rights protection and advocacy organizations in the 1980s, uh, said that when she and other psychologists were looking, were looking for guidance, were looking for references for how to treat or how to help assist uh, people who were uh, concentration camp survivors in Chile, where they had no references. She says there was no text, uh, there was no uh, orientation, and so where they turned to was to the writings of. Of of concentration Nazi concentration camp survivors, and so she says, by reading uh, Bruno Bettelheim, by reading Primo Levi, by re reading Hannah Arendt, and many others, all this helped her, and helped other psychologists to develop a way of of um, of, of of helping uh, survivors. Uh, 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 work through their trauma. So, um, you know, so both, she says, like both universes of people are subjected to a system that has the power to tyrannize them, to torture them, to make them disappear. It is a human relationship that occurs between a person who is absolutely powerless, defenseless, and another who has complete power to humiliate, destroy, rape, make them disappear. It is a perverse human juxtaposition. Each one was absolutely in the hands of another person. And of course, in any concentration camp, in any part of the world, whether it be right or left, such as a North Korean, this perverse relationship exists, is what she says. 
and but probably even more than what happened in the concentration camps uh what's what people have in common is what happened afterwards you know when a survivor left Auschwitz and 30 years later a, a prisoner left via Grimaldi each faced a similar experience you know both were, were exposed to not knowing anything more about life and and both uh faced the same kind of uh trauma of of disbelief and and adaptation uh to to uh to life as it was outside Please ask me another question. <laughs> How did Chilean Jews remember the history of the Spanish Inquisition during the Pinochet years? How did it help Jewish Chileans come to terms with what was transpiring? Uh, I'm not not sure that they were that there was so uh, that the Spanish uh, that the Inquisition was so present. Uh, there's the story that 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 I mentioned. You know that uh, that a noted uh, writer called Guillermo Blanco wrote this a book called Camisa Limpia. That's called uh, Clean Shirt, and a clean shirt uh, was the uh, is a historical fiction of uh, Francisco Maldonado da Silva, uh, in who in 1601 uh, was. Uh, uh, I was the person who I, I mentioned who was part who was uh, accused of being a secret Jew, and uh, and so he he said that in writing his book he 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 quoted he, this is I like to quote he 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 grew up in in this town the city of Tucumán in northern Argentina with his father was a secret Jew, uh, and uh, uh, he uh, he said he said this he says. San Miguel, this town, suddenly became alien to us. I discovered, for example, that when any of us approached someone, the neighbors suddenly had a very urgent need to do something else, always somewhere else. Our good, our, our, our good morning became inaudible to them. Occasionally, I felt a gaze upon my skin, but if I turned my face to see that from where or from whom, I encountered a fleeting glance. But before they looked away, I perceived fear in their eyes. So, you know, twenty years later, this this was a uh, uh, this was the writer's recreation of of these of uh, Francisco Maldonado Silva when when he was a, a child. But twenty years later, uh, as a physician, he would be announced by his own sister sister and and arrested in in southern Chile in in the, in the city of Concepcion, and um, and he. Uh, it was in, on January 23rd, 1639, that he and 11 other Jews were led to uh, to Lima's Plaza Mayor, the, the main plaza uh, for the what turned out to be the largest and the last auto da fe held by the Inquisition in Latin America. And, and so what's interesting is that the writer says that in in right in he wrote this book in the 1980s in the early 80s he says that how did he he uh situate this how did he could convey this he says that he had only to look around uh what was happening 
in his country, own country at that time to, to be able to, um, to describe in such details, to communicate the sense of what it meant to be marginalized and isolated and to be stigmatized uh, by Inquisition uh, and and the persecution uh, uh, with with no um, absolute grounds, uh, detention in inhumane conditions, and so I, I found that it was really quite remarkable that uh, that he, as a writer, uh, said this and 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 his in his uh, in his uh, prologue that it was looking at what was happening in Chile and dictatorship enabled him to write about the Inquisition. I think this is just a, probably the, the closest we can, we can uh, example. I think it was not beyond that, perhaps uh, something as, as, uh, as close on the radar of, of, of many people as, as much as, as the, the, um, the uh, systematic extermination and persecution of of Jews in, in by the Nazis. I think that that was probably closer in uh, to the people's consciousness than the Inquisition. But still, this is one example where where obviously the parallels was clear. What does your book's title mean? Why did you choose it? Why did you select it? The the latent memory. Uh, is on one hand, it's a uh, is a it it's addressed not only to Jews. It's an addressed to all communities and to all of us. As, as I mentioned at the first at the at out when, uh, at the outset of our, our conversation, it is a challenge to. Uh, to go beyond our own uh, traumatic experiences as individuals and collectively, and to associate that, to channel channel that memory in a compassionate, committed way with uh, justice today. That's that's basically what it means, you know that that we uh, as Jews. I think it's going back to probably the most simple uh, view that my father communicated as Jewish, as a Jewish identity. I think it, it's it's really it, it may seem kind of ironic uh, that uh, it seems that thinking of it, it's so it seems rather may, maybe simplistic that his view of that we are we are the most persecuted nation of of the world and. Uh, people in the world, and so we have to be with those who are today. It's quite simple. I think uh, maybe also uh, naive. I, I'm almost. I'm feeling uh, that, but the expectation is uh, has is there, and the hope is there uh, that that memory can be uh, a tool, and not only to keep guarded and, and preserved in a little uh, jewelry box, uh, but but to activate, uh, to uh, to say, we know what what you're going through. We we too are part of this na uh, of, of this nation society, and we cannot stand by indifferent 
and we cannot take sides with a with a dictatorship that is uh, uh, repressing and and treating life uh, with less than the dignity with less than dignity uh, because we know what it looks like. If not, you know, th that's something I think that the Jewish writers that I, uh, that most, uh, you know, admire, you know, like, like Ellie Wiesel very specifically has said that, you know, that because he talks about the concept of, of you know, that uh, a biblical Torah concept that, that we cannot be indifferent and and that that's what moved him as a as a survivor of Auschwitz. Uh, Wiesel was always on the forefront of denouncing uh, the uh, genocide in Rwanda. He was also always uh, on the forefront of 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 uh, of justice, and that came that was born from his own uh, experience personally and as part uh, of the Jewish people, uh, as the persecuted uh, people. So it, 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 it's just a challenge. Leighton Memory talks about that. And there are also specific things, specific measures that, that were born from in the post-Holocaust, the post-Shoah era that are a model for, for societies like Chile. And and so uh, there's a positive memory, you can say that to be challenged in the way that the in the way a society emerges with the uh, with demand for justice, for truth, for reparation, uh, for moral and symbolic reparation as well. My book is also a form of reparation. There, there are memorials and monuments, and and there are gestures uh, which are, uh, are are important for communities uh, um, to uh, to to create uh, for a, a society to be able to heal as a whole. Because it is not only uh, the, 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 the the direct victims are not the only victims of, of, of a authoritarian regime. The entire society, you know, that uh, we see today in Chile that still is reluctant to stick its its uh, neck out. It's uh, and the Jewish community uh, too, which is uh, tends to be the, the sense. The the caution that still predominates in, in, in Chile, I think that still is a legacy uh, of dictatorship, and and all I think one of the most important things that can be done that has been exemplary in Holocaust education is simply that to teach to in to uh, teach and. Uh, Institute practices of of education of consciousness uh, the 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 study systematic study from the time uh, from by children and, uh, and of all ages uh, 
and the visits, uh, as just as Auschwitz is a is a place that people visit this this place of horror. Uh, that is a pat one of the uh, one of the areas that's that's sorely lacking in Chile, because uh, ironically, although in Chile um, the diary of Anne Frank is is like in many countries. It's a, a standard reading for for children or high school students, and and people know much more about the Holocaust. Uh, they know m much more about uh, what happened to uh, Anna Frank than they know about Diana Aron. You know, they know uh, the word, the name uh, Auschwitz and Buchenwald uh, is much more well well known. The Vigrimaldi and what happened there. Uh, it seems that being so close and and the way that the Chilean uh, dictatorship ended or did not end with a negotiated kind of a settlement in which it had like a like a never ending transition and uh, uh, made this uh, a place where even today. Uh, human rights education and history about what happened is a difficult thing to to uh, undertake. Uh, I think it's really interesting that in um, that in, in one place the the site of memory called Begrimaldi, one of the largest, uh, most the longest term uh, sense place, place of of detention where about 4,000 people were were detained and systematically tortured uh, and held sometimes for hours or uh, held in this place or sometimes for months. And and uh, there were about uh, the, the largest uh, number, the greatest majority were survivors. You know, other people who were in Rigrimaldi, maybe uh, less than 300 were disappeared or executed. So uh, what's impressive is that this large, vast numbers of survivors in the society who have these opened uh, wounds or scars. But what I want to say is that there at Vigimaldi, they have a, a human rights education program. And in the year 2006, realizing that uh, that the history of the of what happened in Chile was still so hard to uh, to approach and to talk about. They developed a traveling exhibit uh, with the one. It, it was called Anne Frank and Vigrimaldi, and so they brought this this uh, traveling exhibit to eleven schools uh, in one borough of of Santiago. Finally, at the, in the end, there were about eleven thousand students. Who who saw it, and and so they, as they say, that through Anna Frank, the figure of Anna Frank, and the figure of the Holocaust, enabled them to uh, open up more to what would had happened in in their own country. Um, so uh, it's it what's uh, it, it is really key uh, that a human rights culture be be created take root and it seems that in this country in chile uh holocaust 
studies and and, uh, and aftermath has a, has a very direct relationship um, and a very direct uh, example and model for us to heal as society, uh, both at, in terms of of taking coming to grips and and uh, taking becoming aware of what happened, the need for that, uh, and also in in as a nation to systematically, uh, as was done in Chile, uh, to document what happened uh, through the the Truth and Reconciliation Report uh, that was commissioned by the first democratically elected government in, in, in 90 after the dictatorship. So there were recommendations at, when that uh, that uh, uh, report was uh, presented a year later, the documented documented crimes, human rights crimes that resulted in in death. and and it detailed, uh, the complicity of the judicial system, uh, it did detail the different uh, institutions that were involved, repressive institutions uh, that were involved in 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 holding up the the, the system of, of state terrorism, and it also made a great number of of recommendations. One of them was that uh, that the, that in order to heal. This uh, this country needed human rights education, and it set about um, creating curriculum uh, for human rights and Chile recent history in in the classroom. And that uh, I, as as a reporter, as a journalist, I, I I was interested in finding out what had happened to that, and and I spoke to the person in the in the educational ministry who was in charge of that human rights program. And he confessed that he showed me the, the volumes of, of curriculum and, and really interesting, uh, uh, innovative uh, ways of teaching, but it had never been implemented. It had been left as something, as an optional, as an optional uh, curriculum material because it was still too controversial that there's still remember that that when uh, about forty percent of the population was is a number that that voted to retain Pinochet as dictatorship as dictator in 1988 there's a plebiscite that, that people voted yes or no and so those who voted yes. To keep Pinochet was more than forty percent, and I think that forty percent still still seems to hold hold strong, and we seem to see that in, in in different in different moments. So that makes human rights education as the most basic element, you know, to simply uh, know or understand what happened in the country. Uh, it still makes it something problematic and a challenge today. Uh, some uh, years ago, uh, I and this man I mentioned, Gunter Selman, and two other people, uh, other Jewish political activists, you could say, we were invited or we we uh, created a special uh, workshop for um, 
for for uh, a junior year um, high school students at, at the Jewish uh, school in, in in one of the major Jewish schools in in Santiago. And what we did was that we talked about the Nuremberg laws, and we asked the kids. We we selected stories uh, about kid people their age uh, and things that were happening and how uh, Jews were marginalized and, and, and by the increasing uh, implementation of, of the work of the laws before uh, uh, Nuremberg laws and afterwards and uh, and then we made a uh, we asked then after after that part of the of the session, we asked people to look at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights because in this document uh, are enshrined all of the rights that were trampled upon, that were ignored and that were uprooted uh, by the, the Nuremberg laws and by, by Nazi uh, uh, occupation of Europe. So we made this parallel for these Jewish high school students. Uh, of between uh, the Nuremberg laws and how you could they could say essentially they were maybe codified uh, as uh, universal human rights uh, uh, in in the the various articles of Universal Declaration of Human uh, of, of 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 human rights and so this is one example that we did. And we did we uh, conducted this workshop in, in, in several different places uh, in, in, among in Jewish with young Jewish people. And, and afterwards, as part of this experience, Gunter Selman uh, would talk about his experience, his own personal experience as both as a as a young child and and as a and later as a prisoner. In, in Peter Che's uh, uh, dictatorship and and his lifelong commitment to to justice uh, to reparation and to memory uh, so those are oh those are two uh, an example I think that is really very quite basic and fundamental uh, to be able to see uh, human rights culture take root. In, in any society. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this work? I'd say that this book, I regard it as a personal source book. More than an academic uh, work, which it is, uh, it's an, an academic and journalistic, and it's also uh, become a personal source book in that uh, it continues to have life, and I continue to find ways to give it life. Uh, it has numerous articles uh, I've written. I, I found sources or stories that I enlarge uh, that are that are in contained in its pages. I, I've uh, helped organize uh, uh, some only a few years ago a forum about negationism in in Chile with members of of uh, the Jewish uh, Holocaust uh, survivors um, oral history project and, and other people. Uh, I, I, I have been 
you know, engaged with uh, actively with uh, creating memorials for Jewish victims of of the, the dictatorship, and uh, and in many different instances. Uh, right now, uh, the organization that I mentioned at the beginning, uh, we are really very excited that a project we have been working on, and I specifically in the last two years, is going to very soon be unveiled. And it, it will be a memorial to this young woman, Diana Aron, and Diana Aron, uh, who was 24 at, at the time of her abduction in, in November 1974. And uh, we've, we are just finally after many, many uh, uh, overcoming many different requirements, it was approved by the National Monuments Council with uh, a, and uh, and backed by the municipality of the area where she was abducted, and so we have a uh, an, an architect who has designed a beautiful, really eloquent monolith that's going to be installed in March. The work, this physical work on that project, is going to begin this Saturday, so it's very very current, and uh, we feel that it's one of the things that the monolith, the, the mo memorial to, to Diana, and all of these things that, that I mentioned are just ways to visualize, visualize the diversity, uh, the diverse ways that uh, of being Jewish in, in Chile, uh, that uh, unlike uh, the, uh, some, some who in, in, among the Jewish community and and even some people among the left have the view that it's uh, you cannot be Jewish, you cannot be progressive, and uh, or that it's a contradiction. And we feel that it's very important to visualize uh, and to retain and to enhance our memory, our, by enhancing enhancing the memory of of the Diana. We strengthen our a culture of human rights and and the respect for human dignity in Chile and and everywhere. Thank you. So. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I'm signing off as your host today on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today I've been in dialogue with Maxine Lowy. We've been discussing her new book, Latent Memory, Human Rights and Jewish Identity in Pinochet's Chile, published in Madison, Wisconsin by University of Wisconsin Press, 2022. Maxine Lowy is an editor, translator, and freelance journalist with a special focus on human rights and contemporary social issues in Chile. Born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, the daughter of university, of of university professors, Maxine spent several years of her childhood in Latin America. She has lived in in Chile since 1990. She has been a close collaborator with human rights attorneys in Chile and participates in the Diana Aron Jewish Organization, a progressive Jewish organization in Chile. Thank you wholeheartedly.